This is Hebrews 11, 1 through 4. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded, commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. This is the word of the Lord. So what if I began my sermon this morning by saying, you are strange people. Peculiar. Weird. Odd. Suppose I did. Well, actually, I just did. That's what I want to say about you and about me. Why do I want to say that? Because we, as people of faith, live our lives in this way. We allow our lives to be governed or regulated by unfulfilled promises. At the baseline of how we exist, we function on that principle. We follow certain moral mandates because we believe an invisible God commands them. We follow an invisible God and a person who is said to have been raised from the dead because we believe to do so means that we will inherit eternal life when we die. We follow this triune God with the unfulfilled promise, yet expectation, that someday God is going to make this whole mess a new kind of reality. That He's going to make everything new. That the things that no longer make sense to us, someday we will understand. We're a strange group of people to believe all of that and to govern our lives according to those principles. I am not the first one to say that, you might expect, right? If you take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, we're not going to read it. I would recommend that you look at it. You can go to BibleGateway.com or get online if you don't have an old King James Version. But I would recommend that you read it in the old King James Version, 1 Peter chapter 2. In that section, Peter says to the people that he's addressing, you're you're a chosen people. And then he says, you're a peculiar people. You're just different. The rest of the translations, they don't use that phrase, but I like it. I like it a lot because we are odd. We're the kind of people who follow this, this mandate, this statement that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And we do this because the ancients did it. We understand that everything that is that we see was made out of things that are not. And that an invisible God that we cannot see and cannot touch and cannot feel was the author of all this stuff. 
That's an odd way of approaching life, according to a lot of people. One commentator, translator of the Bible, um, put it this way. Faith, like the writer of the book of Hebrews says, he translates it this way. Faith is belief in things which in themselves have no existence as of yet, but become real and substantial by the exercise of faith. Isn't that an interesting way of understanding faith? Things that are not real as of yet, but become real through the exercise of faith. We're starting a a series on Hebrews chapter 11. It'll take us through the whole summer. And what we're going to do is we're going to go one person after another in Hebrews chapter 11. That's why you had an extended reading this morning, and often we will, from the Old Testament, related to the character that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. In this case, the character is Abel. And the writer of the book of Hebrews commends him as a person of faith. And so, in order to understand what that meant, we want to take a look at the story of Cain and Abel for a moment or two. And we want to acknowledge up front that this is a mysterious story. And it's an interesting reference in Hebrews chapter 11. As a lot of times it's true in Hebrews chapter 11, certain people rise to the occasion, right, and are pronounced as people of faith, and you say, hmm, I wonder why. Well, let's consider this one for a moment. Um, First of all, what in the world is going on with Cain and Abel? What I mean by that is something other than a sibling rivalry, that's pretty clear. Something other than a murder, that's pretty clear at the end of it. But what's going on with this Cain and Abel thing and this bringing an offering to God? What's what's the problem? In other words, to put it another way, what did Cain do wrong? Right? That's a question that you have to ask. Um, And I've got several suggestions for you. None of them I agree with, but they're part of an interpretation in the history of the church concerning this issue. What went wrong? What was the problem? Well, maybe the first problem was something that we'll just call a wrong method, okay? Maybe the problem was that Cain proceeded improperly. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint, which is an ancient translation of the Old Testament for people who spoke in Aramaic, the kind of uh, translation that Jesus would have read, okay? It translates it this way. When Cain encounters God and God encounters Cain, God says to Cain, have you not sinned if you offer it rightly without dividing it rightly? In other words, Cain, you've sinned because you offered the sacrifice, but you didn't divide it rightly. You didn't do it properly. That's an interpretation, right? Maybe that was the problem with Cain. Or maybe it had something to do with being graded on a curve, right? Some of you just graduated college. Uh, Did you like being graded on a curve? I never liked being graded on a curve. I wanted to know if I got a 98. I got an A. Not if I got a 98, I might have gotten a B because a whole bunch of people got a 99, Right? I didn't like that kind of thing. Maybe Cain was graded on a curve. Um, here, here's a suggestion that sounds like that. It's a, a, a Greek philosopher, no, I'm sorry, a, a Jewish philosopher 
who lived in Alexandria um, and was under the influence in many ways of uh, Plato, a Greek philosopher, he, he said this about Cain. He said maybe it was this, Abel's offering was living and Cain's was lifeless. His offering, Abel's, was a proper age and quality. Cain's offering was inferior. Abel's offering was superior in strength and fatness. Cain's was weaker. Interesting. Maybe he got graded on a curve. Or maybe he just brought the wrong stuff, right? Maybe that was the problem. He showed up with the wrong material. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, decides that that must be what it is. And his translation or commentary on this is Cain brought the first fruits of the cultivated ground and of trees, while Abel, milk and firstlings of his flock. The latter offering, that is the fruit and vegetables, the latter offering gave, I'm, I'm sorry, the, uh, the latter offering being the the milk and the first length of the frock. The latter offering gave greater pleasure to God who is honored by those things which grow spontaneously and in accordance with nature and not by those things which are forcibly produced by the ingenuity of covetous men. That's sort of an indictment of farmers, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) you're an ingenious covetous man and you raise fruits and vegetables. And it's very natural for a calf just to grow and a mother to give milk. And so that's the reason Cain had a less than satisfactory offering. Hmm, Interesting option. How about this one, though? How about the less valuable problem, right? The less valuable problem is given to us from a document called the Madrish, which is... um, the Midrash, I mean, the Midrash, it's, it's, it's a, a commentary on the Old Testament scriptures in the Jewish tradition. And the Midrash says this, Cain brought the first fruits of the earth, that is to say, less valuable things. For whatever reason, the first fruits of the earth are less valuable than a goat or some sort of meat offering. Or maybe it's this, maybe it's just basic violation of a code right? As a matter of fact, this is the most popular interpretation for many years, that Cain should have known better. He should have brought a blood sacrifice. There's only one problem, well, at least one problem with that interpretation. There's no suggestion in the text that God called for a blood sacrifice. There's no suggestion in the text that this was a sin offering, right? And also we know from the Old Testament that grain offerings and meat offerings were equally welcomed by God except when a meat offering was called for, uh, for primarily the sin of atonement. But we don't have those parameters here. It didn't seem like God said, I want this because of that. We just don't know. You know, it's helpful, I think, um, to remember at this point that when we're trying to interpret a difficult passage, we have multiple ways of looking at it. Um, I can see I'm running out of time fast on this communion Sunday. Um, In the Jewish tradition, let me go ahead and say this. (laughs) In the Jewish tradition, um, there are a variety of approaches to the text, right, in order to understand difficult passages. One approach to the text is called Peshat, which basically means the literal, simple, plain meaning of the text, okay? Another approach, and they're not in contradiction to one another, Another approach is called remez, 
which means discovering the deep meaning of the text, sort of digging down a little bit, right? Another interpretation or hermeneutic for applying a particularly difficult text is called dirash, which is a comparative analysis of that text and other texts to try to make sense of it. And then there's another way to approach a difficult text. It's called sod, S-O-D. And S-O-D refers to the hidden or dark or secret meaning of the text. So I say all that to say this. Frequently, when we approach a text, especially ones that are difficult, we may have a tendency to stop with the first, right? To start and stop with the first. To begin with the literal, simple, and trying to figure out it, figure it out right there. But it becomes increasingly difficult when we look at difficult texts to do that. And when we look at difficult texts and try to apply that simple hermeneutic, frequently we just come up empty. We come up like what we just did, right? If you didn't get it, we came up empty. We looked at all these theories and we said, hmm, well, could be. In other words, maybe there's something else going on here that we've got to learn that's beneath the surface of the simple literal meaning. And maybe actually it's in the narrative itself. Maybe it's in the relationship between Cain and Abel and God. That would be a different level of understanding or interpretation. It may not be necessary for us to know exactly why the meat and the fruit. Just like it's not necessary for us to know when we look at the early passage concerning the fall, whether it was an apple or some other kind of fruit. It was a forbidden fruit. The idea, it was, it was sin. It was disobedience to God. That's the issue. Then let's explore what that looks like. So for just a moment, let's look at Cain and Abel, shall we? First Cain. Notice that in this narrative, Cain's approach in that worship moment is attached with a silent implication. You see it in verse 7. Whatever it was, we don't know what it was, but whatever it was, Cain knew what was right. Because God says to him, if you do what is right, won't you be okay? We don't know what it was. But whatever it was, he seemed to know what was right. And he did not do it. The second thing we notice in verses 5 and 6 especially is that the baseline of this whole dispute, I think, was an attitude. Cain clearly has a rebellious, pushback attitude, whatever the particulars, against God. He also has a very negative attitude towards pain and rebuke. And furthermore, it's also clear that in this this story, Cain is approached by God so that he might be redeemed. When God approaches Cain for whatever the violation is, he basically says, Cain, it's okay if you do what is right, if you come towards me. Even in the midst of my rebuke, it's okay, Cain. Can you just acknowledge your sin? whatever the sin was. That's what we see in the narrative. May I say that's the deeper meaning of the text. Not what was on the altar, 
But what was in the heart? Now, if you take a look at Abel, you really see quite the opposite, don't you? He acted on what he knew was right. Even if he had no clear evidence concerning why it was right. Right? He didn't say, oh, I got this all figured out. I understand why I'm supposed to bring the fatted portion of this animal. He didn't say anything like that. He just knew what to do, and he did it. (laughs) Isn't that so characteristic of faith? You know what God asks? You don't necessarily understand, but you do it. That's the attitude of Abel. Also, what you see in Abel is a true heart to follow God. Quite a contrast to Cain. The activity of obedience, it's more than deeds. It's a heart attitude. We know this in relationships, right? I can do and say all the right things in my marriage and still miss the mark, right? Of course I can. Because that woman knows my heart. And she can see right through me. It's clear that Abel had a heart for God. There's a passage in uh, Proverbs that speaks to this. It says, the sacrifice, Proverbs 15, 8, for those of you who are interested, the sacrifice of the wicked. The sacrifice of the wicked. Let me, let me interpret that. Even if the sacrifice is correct, okay? I know I'm inserting that, but I believe that's what's going on here. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Just doing the right thing before God is an abomination. It's like that's not what it's about, my friends. You're a stereotypical Pharisee if you do all the right things and don't have the right heart. You know, Jesus' main message was always about this, wasn't it? When he encountered the teachers of the law, it was all about the heart of the matter. It wasn't about the rules and the regulations. So there's the story of Cain and Abel and the possible interpretations. But let's think about broadly lessons that relate to faith. Right? What are the lessons of faith? The first is this. Faith in general, it's belief in an unseen God. That's where it starts, my friends. That's why the book of Hebrews opens up that way. We believe in this invisible God who created everything out of nothing. Try to prove that some way. Try to let science get it that one. It comes up short. It's a faith reality that's beyond the stuff of everyday life. And you know as well as I do, we live on the stuff of everyday life. Everything about us relates to everyday life. We understand the laws of nature. We know gravity. We know cause and effect. We know what's hard. We know what's soft. We know, we know, we know. And God says, if you want to encounter me, you're going to have to believe something that you don't know. You're going to have to believe in an invisible God that you'll never be able to prove to your friends 
And you will trust in spite of the circumstances. That's what faith means. Second thing that faith is, it's a continuous challenge. You don't just get it once and then it's all right. We know this, right? You folks, you peculiar people (laughs) who've been doing this for a long time, you get this. You made a decision to follow God. And then what was the next thing that happened? He asked you to take another step into the dark. Not a leap into the dark that was irrational, but a step based on a promise that was out there and something that was fulfilled in the past. He said, take the next step. And then what happened? Another step and another and another The continuous nature of the challenge of faith is something we've got to embrace. We shouldn't believe, because we'll be Pillsbury Doughboys if we do. We shouldn't believe that faith becomes easier. We shouldn't believe that all of a sudden it's just a panacea. We got it all down. We should believe that God continues to test and to challenge us and to stretch us by the exercise of faith. So faith, it begins in belief in an unseen God. It continuously challenges us. But also, it demands humility. Right? Friends, you can't do this thing called faith without humility. And if you're not growing in humility, it's probably true you're not practicing your faith. (laughs) They just go together. It's humbling to say, I don't understand. And every day, you live according to a moral code that makes no sense to your colleagues. Don't you? It was, just, it was interesting just this week. I was uh, counseling with a young couple um, that I'll have the uh, privilege of marrying. And we were talking about sexuality and marriage and the young woman said to me, yeah, you know what's interesting to me is that we're living in this place and, and we're not living together and we're not having sex, but we're about ready to be married and people can't figure us out at all. They act like we're the weirdest people on the planet. And it's just really difficult To help them to understand. No kidding. That's our world, my friends. When it comes to sexuality, when it comes to materialism, when it comes to any number of other things, when it comes to love instead of hate, when it comes to forgiveness, the list goes on. People look at you like you're just a little bit off. And it takes humility to exercise faith in the constant face of ridicule. And misunderstanding, doesn't it? It does. That demands humility. You basically have to say, in effect, I'm taking my orders from an unseen God and a risen Christ. I'm just a little bit peculiar. And that's humbling. Have you felt that humility? (laughs) Have you felt humbled? I would imagine you have. 
That's a lesson about faith. Here's another lesson about faith. It is absolutely necessary. See, the reality is people exercise faith all the time. Of course, not all the time in God. But they exercise faith in a variety of ways, in a variety of places, with a variety of relationships. I've been doing it for more than 30 years with one woman. And she with me. Exercising the faith to believe, in spite of some days, that she has my best interest in mind and I have hers in mind. Exercising the faith on some days that every bit of sweat and tears that I've put into raising my children will somehow shape them in ways that help them pursue Jesus Christ. Put yourself in that story. You've got relationships that are profoundly important to you. And there is no way to have them without faith in that other person. There is no way to have them without being vulnerable and open and trusting, right? You can't do it. Faith is absolutely, absolutely necessary for life. In this life, how much more is it necessary for the life to come? This life is an analogy for the life to come. When I have faith in my wife and she and me and you and your friends and your spouses and your children and your church, those you believe who love you but you wonder, when you have that kind of faith, you're demonstrating the kind of faith it takes to believe in God in the darkness because you believe by faith that your reward is eternal and that God knows best. It's absolutely necessary eternal life. There's one final thing. It's worth the risk. You know what? It's worth the risk. If you didn't take the risk in relationships, you'd be a sad individual. We used to uh, read a book in high school. It was required literature. Um, it was a story about Silas Marner. Does anybody ever hear that anymore? about a man who was on an island to himself, right? It was awful. <laughs> the reality of his existence was pathetic. Or think of Ebenezer Scrooge if you want to. That's the world of living without faith in other people and relationships and vulnerability. My friends, Ebenezer Scrooge eventually realized because of Tiny Tim, it was worth the risk. He was ready to open up his heart and to learn to love and to invest in people deeply because right here, right now, it's worth the risk. And of course, it's worth the risk in terms of eternity. Or to put it another way, the reward is out of this world. I hope you've taken the risk. If you haven't, I'd love to talk to you. If you have, you'll have to keep taking it over and over again, and the blessings will come. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for the nature of faith. Um, it's a challenge. You move us in the direction that you wish for us to go for our own benefit. It's in our best interest. We know that. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe it because we're short-sighted. But we pray you will give us 
the faith to continue. We thank you for the faith that you gave us to believe. Now may that faith be increased as you challenge us by your grace. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.